Uh, good morning, in the West. Great to be with you as we uh, come to this incredible couple of chapters from Revelation. Um, famous, uh, you'll no, no doubt recognize various lines that have turned up in songs and classical music um, and, and poetry and all sorts of things. So it's going to be wonderful to unpack this with you. Uh, as Kat mentioned at the beginning, normally we have a Q&A um, in the service after the sermon. Uh, today, just because we're doing a few other things, uh, we're going to have the Q&A after the service in a separate Zoom room. So I'll put up a link for that if you want to come and ask questions about uh, these two chapters and indeed about anything that we've covered so far in Revelation. Uh, you're very welcome to come and join for a bit more of a discussion. Uh, but before we jump into Revelation 4 and 5, let's pray together. Father, we are so in awe of this these passages uh, which describe your glory, your throne room. Um, Father, it's hard to comprehend, as John did, what exactly we're seeing, what exactly we're hearing. But I pray that by your Spirit, you would reveal to us uh, the deep meanings and truths uh, that are outlined here so that we too uh, might join in the worship of God, the one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen. Uh, so thousands of years ago, Ancient scientists formed an assumption that went mostly challenged for a long, 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 long time. And that assumption was that uh, at the center of the universe, with the planets, moons, and even the stars orbiting around it, is the Earth. There was simply no reason to think otherwise. Uh, from a, the advantage point of standing on the earth with just a naked eye, it seems like the celestial bodies, the sun, moon, stars, just rotate around and around and around the earth. And so that held uh, as what people thought. And then in the hundred years that made up the 16th century AD, that basic assumption was completely turned on its head. Uh, if you remember back to your history classes, you might remember that in 1609, Galileo Galilei uh, gazed through his teles telescope, a brand new invention at the time, and as he did, he was transported into the heavens themselves. He brought his scientific genius to bear on his observations, and in doing so, made credible a theory that a man named Nicolaus Copernicus, a Polish priest, had come up with a century earlier. That theory now uh, made, uh, with much more evidence brought to bear on it, was that the sun, not the earth, is at the center of the planets. Humans gained the ability to see beyond their physical limitations and in doing so changed uh, the very fabric of how they understood the universe to work. For millennia, an Earth-centric view of the universe made total sense. And in the same way, a human-centric view of life makes total sense. The idea that we, humanity, or even us as an individual, are really at the center of life, the most important thing, because it's what we observe. We instinctively believe that there is something special about us, about the human species, and the world around us 
seems to flourish, help us flourish. It seems designed for us. But also, like the old Earth-centric view, uh, putting ourselves at the center of life does have its problems. No matter how much progress we make, things just don't quite add up. They seem out of whack, uh, discombobulated, frustrated. But without a better idea of how life works, we just go along with it and make the best of it. But what if our viewpoint was radically changed? What if we had a kind of a spiritual telescope that we could look through uh, that helps us see beyond our normal senses. What, what, what would we really find at the center of life? Our passage in Revelation 4 and 5 is that telescope. It transports our field of view into the heavenly realms and reveals the one who sits at the center of reality. These two chapters are about worship. In the Bible, worship is how you relate to whatever you put at the center of your life. The vision of Revelation is designed to show that only one person is truly worthy of worship. So these two chapters tell us two things. Chapter 4 is about who is at the center of worship. And chapter 5 is why they are worthy to be there. So who is, worthy, uh, who is at the center of worship and then why they are worthy to be there. Let's start with the who. Come with me to Revelation 4 verse 1. Uh, John, the author, writes, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first uh, heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. Revelation is a recounting of this strange vision received by John, Christian leader. And here in chapter 4, he sees this door standing open in heaven, and a voice ushers him to come up here, presumably to come through it. Uh, and this is shown to be the voice of Jesus himself, who we've already heard before in previous chapters as the voice that sounds like a trumpet. Uh, and he is inviting John um, up from the earthly realm to the spiritual realm. Now, whether this was a symbolic representation of heaven or literally the place where God lives, uh, we don't really know. We're not told. But either way, John finds himself before the throne of God. And this vision defies John's five human senses. And so again, he reaches into his deep knowledge of the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel and Daniel, to find words and phrases to describe what he sees. He sees a rainbow of shimmering light encompassing the throne and lightning and thunder emanating from it. And the one who sits there is beautiful beyond compare, shining like precious jewels. And as John's vision expands, he realizes that this isn't just a throne room, this is a heavenly royal court. And as with any royal court, there are attendants. So verse 4, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. And they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. Who are these 24 elders who are able to sit so close to the throne of the glorious God? Well, 
The number 24 is a really big clue, a multiple of 12. Where do we see 12 in the Bible? Well, there were 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. And there were 12 apostles, disciples, in the New Testament. Together, the 24 elders, 2 times 12, represent the combined people of God, the faithful of Israel before Christ and the faithful of the church after Christ. Here is God's chosen people represented in the heavenly realm as princes ruling with God's authority. Then John sees something even stranger. He sees four living creatures covered with eyes and with six wings. One looks like a lion, one looks like an ox, one looks like a man, and one looks like an eagle. Well, what's this? Well, these strange creatures probably represent the totality of living creatures in the world. The lion is the head of the wild animals. The ox is the head of the domesticated animals. The eagle, the head of the flying animals. And of course, a man symbolizing the human race. These representatives of all animate life uh, sing in unison a perpetual song of praise to the one who sits on the throne. And whenever they do, which is apparently all the time, uh, the 24 elders join in and they lay their crowns of authority before the throne and they sing a counterpoint chorus. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. You, for you created all things and by your will they were created and have their being. These songs give us an insight into this part of the vision. Before the reality of earth and earthly history is revealed in the chapters to come, Jesus wants us to experience the reality of heaven. In this place out of time, the entire cosmos joined together in praise to the one who created all things. We know that the sun holds the planets in orbits because its size produces this immense gravitational pull. Well, here we see that at the center of reality is God, and the gravitational pull of his glory draws all things in worshiping orbit around him. And it's an invitation. It's an invitation to join in that orbit, to join the throng and pick up our own melodies and harmonies of worship and praise. But not everyone responds to that invitation in the same way. Not everyone responds to it as an attractive prospect. I remember uh, years ago, uh, in a conversation with a friend of mine who's an atheist, uh, he asked me, what sort of God demands worship? His problem was that it's all very well and good to say God made everything, but, but why would he make us put him at the center of our lives? See, if you're coming from a position of unbelief in God and even suspicion about his motives, then that's a hard pill to swallow kind of sounds megalomaniacal, you know. And to be honest, even Christians who intellectually believe that God is at the center also find it hard sometimes. Faced with the world's sufferings and troubles and disappointments, worshiping God can be sometimes the last thing that you want to do. 
takes a lot of trust, actually, to put someone at the center of your life in any situation. It's trust that they won't abuse their power. It's trust that they won't disappoint you. It's trust that they won't abandon you. You need a lot of trust. So it's evidence of God's grace in this vision that it's not just an invitation to worship. It's an invitation to see why God is worthy of worship. And that's what we uh, see in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. What is this strange scroll? Well, scholars have different ideas, but one explanation seems to make the most sense. It's that this scroll symbolizes are God's plan of judgment and salvation. The Old Testament prophets predicted that in the last days, God would pour out judgment on wickedness and sin and mercy on those who turn to him in faith. Judgment and mercy. So the angel's question is, who in heaven and on earth is worthy to bring about God's justice and mercy and enact it in history? And John weeps because it seems that no one could be found who was worthy. And so perhaps God's plan would go unrealized. And then two things happen. John hears something and he sees something. He hears something and he sees something. Where does he hear? Well, he hears one of the elders say, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion. The lion is a symbol of strength and majesty, a royal person of unsurpassed power and might. And this lion is able to open the scroll and to hold the future in his hand and bring about God's plan. That's what John hears. But see what he sees. Verse 6. Then I saw... A lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Take a moment to feel the paradox of what John hears and sees. John looks expecting to see a lion, strong, majestic, wild, one who will throw, overthrow evil by force. But what he sees is a lamb with its throat cut, bloody, weak, with the appearance of death. And then another paradox, this lamb is not actually drained of life at all. Despite appearances, uh, it is standing tall on the throne of God, pretty unusual for a dead thing. And this lamb, again, unusually, takes the scroll from the hand of God. And when it does so, the elders and the creatures collapse to the ground, singing, 
you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. Of course, we know the identity of this lamb. Jesus Christ is the only one who can bring together the lion-like justice of God and the lamb-like mercy of God. Justice because he alone is perfect and true. He sees into the depths of every human heart, and he is able to judge each person perfectly for what they have done. And mercy because on the cross he died for the sins that reside in every human heart and are uttered from every human mouth and performed by every human hand. In his mercy, the judgment of God would not fall on those who entrust themselves to the Lamb because he substituted himself into their place so that they could receive grace. Justice and mercy, together, they are the plan of God is worthy of the Lamb who can bring those two things together in his death on the cross. God shows himself then to be worthy of worship. The throne is occupied in this passage by the God who reveals himself to be Trinity. The Father, the creator of all things, the one who John sees in, verse, in chapter 4. The Son, the Lamb who was slain, the Redeemer and the Restorer. And even the Holy Spirit symbolized by the seven horns and seven eyes on the Lamb. God's powerful and empowering presence. Father, Son, and Spirit together proclaim that God has chosen to show His power on earth, not through mass shows of force, but through humility and sacrifice. Jesus, the Lamb of God, overcomes the evil and destructive powers of the world through His suffering and death. He is worthy to receive all praise because He has become the instrument of God's grace and mercy. And he does not inspire worship out of fear or dry obligation, but worship filled with love and devotion and gratitude. So how do we respond to this vision? Well, it invites us to ponder who do we believe is most worthy to be at the center, whether at the center of all things or even just the center of our lives. I wonder if this is a worthwhile question, uh, question to ask even if you're not a Christian. Because as Bob Dylan saying, uh, you're going to have to serve somebody. So you better choose that someone very carefully. In our sermons uh, at Inner West, we often talk about modern idolatry, and that's turning a good thing into an ultimate thing something that you pin all your hopes on. And we often talk about that thing as a what. Your career, financial stability, a relationship, it's a thing, it's a what. But I wonder if somewhere in there is always also a who. A person who embodies all that you want to be. A political leader, a, a tech guru, 
a celebrity, a parent, an influencer of the Time magazine or the Instagram varieties, a romantic partner, or perhaps um, not an, a specific individual, uh, but an ideal, a human ideal of power or influence or beauty or love. Someone who you think, if I center myself on them, they will lead me to victory. And so you model yourself on them. You take on their, their habits and thoughts, and their way of seeing life becomes yours. And to an extent, there's nothing wrong with this, because there's plenty of great people well worthy of imitation, both in the Christian and secular world. It's not saying that's necessarily an issue, but the problem is that if you put them right at the center, then inevitably, eventually, they will let you down. You won't find the kind of success that you expected or hoped for. Their star may fall. They might fail and your hopes will be dashed. Or you'll realize that what works for that person doesn't actually work for you because you're different. Or you might find that you begin to adopt from them not just their virtues, the, the great things, admirable things, but their vices as well. Now, there'll be some pushback to this. Someone will say, well, I don't actually have anybody like that. I don't put just one person or even one thing at the center of my life. It's just, I just don't do that. And actually, uh, you're probably right. Most people don't. Some people do, but most people don't. What most people do, I think, is actually even worse. We don't put just one person on a pedestal for life. No, we keep a constant rotation. We go from person to person to person, constantly realigning and changing, reconsidering who has the best chance of success. When it comes to finding the center of our lives, we're swing voters, constantly swinging one way or, or another, attaching ourselves to one person or another. It's like driving through a suburb that you've only been to once or twice without a map or a GPS. You navigate your way by latching on to anything that looks remotely familiar, going from one waypoint to another, trying to find a way through. Because many people don't have a true center of worship, they latch on to anything that seems like it, they might be worthy of occupying the central place. And so over the course of a life, the center changes time after time after time, maybe even multiple times in a single day. Does that resonate with you? Eugene Peterson called this living life eccentric, eccentrically. Living life eccentrically. Eccentric literally means out of center. He wrote, it's a life of spasms and jerks. At the mercy of every advertisement, every seduction, every siren. If there is no center, there is no circumference. It's being swept into a vast restlessness with no steady direction and no sustained purpose. Does that resonate with you? It's life uh, not with a center, but with multiple centers. It's a life stuck on a uh, in a paddle boat, in a, in a huge storm, being pulled to and fro by every wave. Life with a false center, something 
you really pin your hopes on. It's, it's a disaster waiting to happen, but life with no center at all, well, at the best, it's pretty unfulfilling. And at worst, it's a recipe for a tailspin into exhaustion. John invites us to look through his visionary telescope and see that actually no human being is actually and can be the center of life. No mere human is glorious enough to exert a gravity that can keep us securely in orbit. Whenever a human grasps, even for a bit of power, they always end up using it poorly, either too, too fallen to use it to grant justice and mercy, or, or even worse, using it to abuse others. They're not worthy of having the central place. So John says, look. Look to the glorious Son of God, one who doesn't just hold the power of the universe in his hand, but demonstrates it with perfect love and grace. One who was willing to sacrifice his own life to be himself pulled out of the center, to the extremities, to the cross, so that in his death others might have life. One who overcame death to rise again in order to gather together around him a people who are lost and wandering. To give them true center and true purpose and true direction. Jesus is revealing that the way to conquer life is not through the gaining of power and prestige or by attaching yourself to someone who promises to give you them. But his pathway of weakness, of suffering and sacrifice. We know this is true because his path led him not to ultimate death and defeat, but here in Revelation, the, the glorious victory, honor, and praise to, to be seated with on the throne of reality. And who are surrounding him in this vision, ruling with him? His people, the church. Those who have laid down their crowns to worship the one who truly deserves to receive Praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So if you're not a Christian with us today, you might ask yourself, who or what is at my center right now? <laughs> it might be something different tomorrow. Are they truly worthy? Is Jesus truly worthy? And if you are a Christian, then you've aligned yourself to Jesus. And our problem is that we make him the center in some situations, but not in others. So consider this. If Jesus is the center and we've, we've come to know him as worthy, what does that mean? When you log on to your sixth Zoom call for your workday, when you walk around your neighborhood for your hour of exercise, when you're thinking about your plans and dreams for 2021, when you're feeling down and despondent about the latest news reports, when you join with us at Inner West on Sunday morning for our worship gathering, when you gather with your missional community during the week, what does it look like to make Jesus the center in all of life, in every moment? You see, we're all tempted towards eccentric worship. This is a moment, family to bring everything once again back into orbit around one center, around Jesus. And to live life in such a way so that we have t 
constant and continual moments to recenter our lives, to come back in different ways to this vision of revelation and see Jesus for who he is and see him worthy and have our hearts respond to acclaim him as Lord and King and join again with the song of every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them who sing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Amen. I'm going to pray in a second and then I'm going to give you some time to reflect. Um, you've got two options. You could spend it in silence if you like, but we've also, um, a, a number of people um, suggested a, a film clip by um, Andrew Peterson singing a song called Is He Worthy? Um, John or Kat might get you to put that link in the chat now. Uh, and if you like, if you, that's helpful for you to respond by listening to something, then you can um, play that during our reflection time. And then after that, Sarah will continue um, to lead us in singing. So let me pray. Jesus, you are worthy. You are worthy to open the scroll with its seven seals and bring about in these last days your plan of justice and mercy to begin to bring to an end the powers of this earth that are evil and wickedness and unfruitful and to extend mercy and bring up those who entrust themselves to you through the storm. Jesus, you've given us a way to do that, which is sacrifice and service, humility, to boast in our weakness because in our weakness you are strong and so we are strong. This is a hard thing to live out. It's a hard thing even to imagine, definitely a hard thing to live out. So we need your help, Holy Spirit, to come and speak to our spirits about the worthiness of Christ and to remind us, to prompt us throughout our weeks and days to reconsider Jesus, realign ourselves with him and join with the worship that we know is happening right now in the heavenly realms to the one the Lion of Judah, and to the Lamb who was slain. And it's worthy to receive all power and glory and honour forever and ever. And we praise these things in His name, Jesus' name. Amen.